Hi, my name is Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phelan McElhenney. Welcome to the Anne and Phelan Scoop. It's week 62. That is one year and two months and two weeks since the two weeks to flatten the curve lockdown. Remember that? Remember, uh, yeah, remember. We do. I remember it's going to two well. weeks, flatten the curve. And we'll talk about that later on, actually, about how we were all, you know, save the, save the health service, flatten the curve, you know. Exactly. Just two weeks sacrifice. So six, week 62 and uh, Gavin Newsom is going to let us have our freedom in a, few, a month or so. Apparently, and in other parts of the world too. But we're going to speak actually uh, quite a lot about COVID yes, later yes. on when we interview Baroness yes. Fox. Order, order, order. Of Buckley. Yes, yes we interview Baroness Fox of Buckley, otherwise known as Claire Fox, on, uh, on the recent British election uh, um, that may have lessons for the American left and right and the enduring fight for freedom. So... Uh, what else have we got on the show? Oh yeah, what a joke journalists are. What a joke. The New York Times catches up with the data that has existed and been as obvious as the nose on your face for decades. There is no population bomb. It was an anti-human hoax. We said it was, they laughed at us, and now they're catching up, and now they're saying, oh my God, it's terrible. You know, it's and the actual reverse. There is an actual population decline that's gonna have Massive problems. problems. And we look at how COVID has broken people. And we don't mean long COVID. We mean broken people. And we're going to talk, uh, have a look, have a look at a story from CNN, by the way, from that. And location, location, location. We have a delightful piece of property to share with you today. It's going to be a new feature, I think, on the show where we look at. We've realized that you, like ourselves, are quite partial to property porn. So um, you've come to the right place if that's if that's your interest. And we have a little recipe. We had quite the busy, would, we had a very, very busy weekend. So the recipe is very, very simple, but delicious. And we would recommend. I would call the property section reverse property porn. Well there's, well, there's a bit of porn and there's a bit of, yes, okay, okay. a bit of, a bit so, some, something for everyone. So let's We're go over, over first. Right now. Yeah, we did this. We just did the interview before we came on here with Barnes Fox, otherwise known as Claire Fox. Let's go over to that interview now. Uh, you'll, you'll love it, actually. It's, it's wide ranging and very interesting. It uh, talks about everything from hoaxes to Harry. And just actually, before we go to the interview, I just want to ask Phelan, because I think it'd be good for our viewers oh, yeah. to understand. So Baroness Fox, she is a mem she is a, uh, has been elevated to the House of Lords. Lord. There are two houses of government in the UK, the House of Lords and the House of Commons. The House of Commons are all elected. Yes. Tell us about the House of Lords. House of Lords, none of them are elected. Um, some of them are hereditary. Some of them are appointed by the government. You know, it's a, as she, she says in the interview, uh, it's uh, and set off and she's there to abolish the House of Lords. She believes the House of Lords should be abolished because it's undemocratic and not elected. Okay, let's it's, hear from Claire. It's, it's like the American Senate, only no votes allowed. Let's go over to Claire right now. We're joined now by Claire Fox, also known as Barnes Fox of Buckley. She's the director of the Academy of Ideas, which she established to promote the shocking concept of a public space where ideas could be contested without constraint. My God. She's a former member of the Revolutionary Communist Party. She's had an interesting political journey through libertarianism onto running uh, and winning election as a member of the European Parliament for the Brexit Party. Although I think she would argue that it was the political parties that changed, not her. Um, so Claire was recently recommended to be a baroness by Prime Minister Boris Johnson. I believe the correct term is she was elevated to the Lords. Oh, nice. So, welcome. <laughs> welcome to the very elevated Baroness Fox of Buckley. Yay! <laughs> I thought and, I would uh, I'd die to spend a bit of time at the plebs, you know, today. So that's... <laughs> we'll tip our forelock. 
Right, is what right, we do? Right, Tip our forelock. Okay. Right, right. <laughs> yes. Very nice to see you, Claire. Yeah, very nice to see you. So, first of all, Claire, um, could you tell us about the recent election results in the UK? Uh, they were local elections, so many of our listeners and viewers may not have even heard about them. But from what I can see, they seem to be part of the pattern that came to prominence with Brexit and was magnified by Trump's victory in 2016. So, Tell us about the recent results and the patterns they're revealing about the electorate in in the Western world. Well, it's interesting because after lockdown, not that we were out of it, there was always a danger that these local and regional elections that were kind of regional elections for the Senate in Scotland, which is the Scottish devolved parliament. Oh, no, that's in Wales, sorry, Senate in Wales, the Welsh devolved parliament and the Scottish uh, uh, parliament as well as regional mayors and then local council elections. And I think a lot of us thought because we've been locked down for so long that maybe these elections would kind of come and go and there wouldn't be much engagement, right? But, you know, in a way, we've the public has been demobilized, demotivated, you know, told to stay at home and kind of shut up and put up. And so it was unclear what was going to happen. And, and what was enjoyable, at least, was that the electorate did what they do so well which is they went out and did things that have completely messed up and screwed up the political landscape. Always an enjoyable moment and kind of voted in ways that nobody had quite anticipated. So there was one by-election, which is important because that's where a member of parliament was elected. That was quite a big issue. And it was Hartlepool, which is a very strong forever Labour seat. Uh, That was it. It was also one of the places that I think it had the highest vote for leaving the European Union in the country. So Labour scraped through at the last general election, but they lost with great numbers to the Conservative Party. And what we saw was in England, not in Scotland and Wales, but in England, the Labour Party completely failed in any kind of a bid to challenge the Conservatives and lost a huge many councils to the Conservatives. And this is in areas, working class areas, where nobody ever votes Tory. So this, as you have indicated, Fallon, was a, a, you know, a continuation of that, if you want a, a kind of uh, discontented ordinary people in this country just say, the Labour Party are not for us. They've completely sold us out. They've become a middle class, you know, the phrase woke is used, woke party of students and identity politics. And we're just not going to vote for them. And even though it's apparently the Tories are the establishment, we prefer to go with the Tories because at least they delivered Brexit. That seems to have been what the vote was about. Now, just to confuse things, they, you know, the Labour Party did well in Wales. That didn't happen to them in Wales. Wales is a very strong Labour area, but it's also got a a, a Labour government in Wales. And I think that there is an element of um, truth to the fact that that all of the people who are in power um, were were treated well. In other words, Tories weren't punished in any way for their COVID policies. In fact, they were rewarded. You know, Boris Johnson, I mean, I might be sceptical of particularly the attacks on civil liberties that have come with lockdown, but that is not a broadly felt issue. <laughs> and so in, in, in Wales, the Labour Party runs Wales and it was seen that Mark Drakeford, a rather dull politician that nobody had heard of before this pandemic hardly, even though he's 
the, the, the main minister in Wales. But he has been on the television every single day since the COVID pandemic started. And in a way, he's become a kind of paternalistic father figure, you know, keeping everyone safe and giving out the vaccine. So he actually, and it was anticipated Labour would do rather badly in Wales, they didn't, and they, they came through. The Greens have undoubtedly picked up some protest votes, it looks like, largely from the Labour Party, but the Greens have got more council seats. And then in Scotland, the continued, you know, domination by the SNP uh, uh, um, was not thwarted by any new parties or anything. Um, so Scottish nationalism is still a very real feature. But, you know, the Tories got a few seats and the Labour Party weren't, you know, struggling, clawing back a few seats, but nothing to write home about. But what's interesting, just, just to note, is that although the SNP, the Scottish Nationalist Party, continue to be the dominant party in Scotland, in order to get that vote, Nicola Sturgeon emphasised that people should not vote on the question of the Scottish Union, but they, they should vote on the on the um, record of the SNP in running Scotland during the during the pandemic. And I think that a lot of people voted for her on that basis because they thought she's done really well, rather than they want to break away from uh, the United Kingdom. So, so uh, go, going back to England, then. Um... The, the Labour Party is becoming this rump, is that correct? Rump of basically London seats and university towns and inner cities, perhaps? Or, or, yeah. or are they? Well, it's, it's not just, yeah, it's inner cities. So, you know, in Manchester, the London, the, the mayoral candidate for Manchester, Andy Burnham, had a landslide victory. But in outer Manchester, in all the towns around it, Labour were absolutely humiliated. So the central area, so it's not just London is all I'm saying. It is, as you say, cities, university places. What's also interesting, though, was that the mayor in London, uh, uh, Sadiq Khan, who should have romped home with a huge majority, mm -hmm. actually had a major scare. And it looks at one point as though the Conservative Party candidate, who actually was not considered to be very strong by many people, and it was assumed he wouldn't win. Mm -hmm. He actually came a very close second. Yeah. And uh, so I think that even in London, London is much more differentiated than maybe the Labour Party think. They think they just own London. But actually, London's got lots of places in it and out of London where particularly their environmental policies are really annoying people. They've got these, they've imposed low traffic neighbourhoods, banning cars and so on. That's really caused some stir. And just a sort of general sense that the Labour Party, I think now, are gutted as a party. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just, they are, they no longer have any semblance to representing Labour, which is the, you know, if you're the Labour Party, you ought to represent the odd Labourer, no chance. <laughs> the people who Labour in this country have turned their back on the Labour Party. So although they'll stagger on, I think this is the, the killing off of a major political party in this country. And the Conservative Party retain an enormous amount of support, but I want to just caveat that. They are the recipients of the willful destruction of the Labour Party yes. by the working class in this country. But I don't think that 
one would say that that's the same as the, a full embrace of the Conservative yes. Party. Yes. yes, yes. It's not an ideological victory for Conservatives. No, in fact, it's a, it's, it's, it's actually what, what we're seeing is that the Labour, the Labour Party, um, yeah, are committing suicide. What, what, like, what's are the, you know, because I want to compare this a little bit to what's going on here. I mean, and because we've, you know, we saw with Brexit, Brexit came first, then Trump got elected. Um, and I think there are parallels that are that are worth mentioning. I mean, you know, is what what you know what the Labour Party in the UK have done by alienating by alienating their voters. I'm just the laborers. The laborers. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything that we could learn here, and would hope would hope to, that that might happen. Something similar might happen here. Well, I mean, I, I think that, that that it sort of happened there simultaneously all i'm saying is it's not over yet and i don't think it's over yet in america that's all and i mean this isn't these elections were not hugely significant as it were in the context of british politics i mean you know it's not a general election but it was an indication i suppose that that spirit of resistance has not been thwarted yet and this was after a year of being locked down and losing a lot of confidence. Yes. So I think it was in that sense a kind of hopeful sign that those instincts are still there. But, you know, there's no doubt about it. None of us really understand. None of us know what the impact on that kind of dissident resistance will be from this terrible period of atomization and isolation and politics being suspended. I mean, when democracy is effectively shelved, which is what's happened here, and um, democratic decision making has just been explicitly taken off the table, you know, no accountability and so on. We've yet to see what it feels like when the when things return to normal and how angry people become about the collateral damage mm -hmm. of lockdown policies that nobody voted for, but which obviously they couldn't vote for because it was a pandemic, but which were never accountable. And so I think there's yet a long way to go in the swirling through of this. I, was gonna, I want to ask Claire, because you're very wise, Claire. You've been watching politics forever. You've read everything. How shocked were you by what just happened, particularly in the UK? And, and we talked, I know off air, we talked a little bit about Ireland earlier. How shocked are you that of how you've how people have behaved? So so the first thing is that that I um, it's an this is an interesting thing. I, I hope you'll find it interesting. The Brexit voters were completely split about how to respond to COVID. Right. There was no. You know, you couldn't say that the people who were more sceptical about the kind of more authoritarian lockdown measures were, you know, that the sceptics were all Brexit party supporters or Leave voters yeah. and that everyone else. That's just not the way it played, right? In fact, something rather interesting happened, which, which confused me, which was that the people who wanted to show responsibility and social solidarity with the vulnerable were working people who in many ways were intolerant of people who complained about civil liberties abuses and said, oh, for God's sake, it's a public health crisis. We've got to look after people. So that was that was weird because in a way it showed me, apart from anything else, that never, ever take anyone for granted, never try and lump everyone together. It's always more complicated. And secondly, that sometimes if you just simply state that you support freedom, and hope that that's enough, that there are other factors. So I think that it was wrong for some of my 
you know, my peers who were sort of desperately pro-retaining freedom, that they sometimes sneered at those who who, who went along with a lot of the, the measures and called them kind of cowards or sheeples who didn't know what they were doing or said that they were absolutely terrified out of their minds and therefore they were useless and why couldn't they be braver? I mean, you know, that seemed to me to be... That was basically what was going on. But as things have sort of panned out, it's got there's a more settled understanding now that now that people are less frightened of catching the virus, not so much themselves, but their families catching and it really being like the plague and wiping everyone out. As time has gone on, people have begun to say, well, how has the political elite dealt with this? And should we have just handed over all decision making to the scientific uh, experts? Mm -hmm. And particularly of concern, I think, to broader range of people has been the attempts to uh, demonize anyone who dissented and the attacks on free speech and the way that big tech and social media companies have been used by the governments to basically say what you can and can't say as acceptable. So it's become more politicized. Are you asking me if I was shocked? Of course I was shocked. I mean, you, you, we all know what it felt like that we watched China lock down its citizens and said, oh my God, you know, well, what are we going to, what's going to happen in the Western world? Because there's no way they could get away with that. Yeah. <laughs> and here we are. And here we are. And I mean, here I, we are. It, I mean, the, I, I, thought, I thought it was a good lesson as well in the power of propaganda. You know, in the UK, they had this NHS that needed to be protected, which has, I think, a, a very broad base of support. And so it became, you know, do you want to kill this lovely nurse? <laughs> you know, um, this is who you're you really you're going to go out for a walk in the park now and kill the lovely nurse here who's done a two two shifts back to back or whatever that they made it that that propaganda was very it was very overwhelming. And I think the thing as well of being frightened of dying, you know, you who you're not on the front line, you're not being sent to war, but you're actually going to die because you went to the supermarket. Did it, people bought that. People bought that. I think they did. But I do think what you're saying is right about the NHS. So the NHS is a particularly important symbol of British um, identity. You know, that's whether we like it or not. This is the world beating health service. Now, in another discussion, we might discuss the fact that it isn't and it's got lots of flaws, but it symbolically represents something. But the thing that we also have to remember was that in those initial times, by the way, we watched those films of Italian hospitals being overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And we watched those. Uh, we, we've just seen it happen in India. And we've seen, you know, like where hospital corridors were full of dying people. Right. And we watched it in China. I mean, I watched the films from the, the hospitals in, in China with the health workers just they couldn't cope. Right. So, of course, it was an initially quite rational thing to say. We've got to do whatever we can so that our health service isn't overwhelmed by this. So it sounded sensible. Mm -hmm. And of course, in, in, in many ways, the health service, one of the problems was it was a genuinely unknown virus. And so nobody knew what to do. So they were probably not treating it well, not treating it correctly. Too many people ended up on on um, ITU machines or on, on intense, in intensive care units Um that in the end they realized that's probably not the way to have done it they didn't really know what they were dealing with in yeah. other words and there was all that so i think that we all gave a set there was a certain amount of latitude given even for that in terms of propaganda even though in a way we kind of knew 
And also, there were a lot of brave people who did put them, you know, actually the, the nurses, but also the, 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 the shop workers. Because if you don't know what it is and you think it's the plague and you have to carry on going to work, that's quite brave, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's fair enough. But gradually, 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 as people started to become more accustomed to what was going on, that's where the propaganda started. I think it was like, in case they now don't follow the rules, we've got to ramp up the kind of fear factor. We've got to ramp up the what's at stake factor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a genuine thing, which, as you've just said, that it wasn't even so much you'll kill the nurse. It was that you'll kill granny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the most despicable campaigns yeah. was to say to healthy young people, if you break the rules then granny will die. You will be killing your own elderly relatives. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's a terrible accusation. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that the greatest mistake, and I, I mean, God, I'm not going to get into, there'll be inquiry upon inquiry and eventually yes. we'll understand what happened. But one of the things which I think was unforgivable was they did not need to demobilise society. Mm-hmm. You know, you could have said to people, all those 20-somethings who were absolutely going spare and driving everyone else mad with their families and you know all that energy all that youthful energy 16 to 30 year olds you you could have done the equivalent of a land army right they could have been out you know i don't care which bit of voluntary work you would have wanted but they could have been out planting trees painting the outside of old people's homes yes you know what i mean they could have been they were not vulnerable they could have helped but they were told to stay put. And what they did was they basically, in an undifferentiated way, told everyone, everyone, that they were not to leave the house mm-hmm. and not to do anything. And that your way of being brave was to do nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has psychologically kicked the stuffing out of people. Yeah. And it also destroyed the public realm and the public sphere. Mm. You couldn't talk to people. Yeah. Well, it doesn't help as well that the media didn't allow discussion, you know. And then the media didn't, exactly. You know, I think you, by the way, you had a lot more of it over there than we had over here or in Ireland, where, you know, you'd expect in a situation like that, that every night on the TV, there'd be a debate, <laughs> you know, there would be a good debate, a robust debate with somebody saying, you know, is, is this actually the right thing to do? Have we done a cost benefit analysis, whatever, which of course has never been done ever, but that never happened. So people, particularly I'm clear about that in Ireland, but it's, it's very similar here. You just never heard anything else. No. Like all the mainstream media here played, did not have any dissenting voices. They weren't allowed. And it was just, it was actually, the only dissenting voice was the government hasn't done enough. Yes. Well, that's, it's, that's, that's, by the way, you know, we've been talking about the collapse of the Labour Party. The Labour Party also, because one, one of the things I haven't noted is that whilst I'm saying we've got to be understanding about pe- why people went along with it, a lot of people really have suffered during this financially because not everyone was on this furlough scheme where the government paid 80% of wages. But but lots of people weren't on it, you know, self-employed people, people on, on, on zero-hours contracts. I mean, people went into financial penury apart from anything else and just were, you know, if, if your life... You know, all these jokes that people have said, but it's also true, which is, is that, you know, lockdown's fine. You've got a lovely flat in the garden, right? Not great if you're in a grim, you know, uh, tower block, right? In the middle of, uh, of, you know, where there's nothing to do. People's lives were miserable, have been miserable. And the Labour Party, instead of representing the lives of ordinary people in this country and pointing that out, guess what they said? 
lockdown faster, harder, quicker. Why aren't the government? So they never showed any empathy or sympathy. And they only understood it in terms of make sure people get money. You know what I mean? So they made a fuss about it and said, oh, up the amount of money they get. But it's, there's more to life than just earning money. Yeah. You have to have something to spend it on. It's not, yeah, you need yeah. to be able to go out with your mates to the pub. You need to be able to collectively get together and have a chat. And once you deny that to people, you basically tell them that they are irrelevant to the solution, to society. Their lives are irrelevant. You just do nothing unless we tell you to do it. Now, that has to be psychologically crippling. So one of the biggest victims of the whole thing has been free speech. I think that's I think that's really, really clear. But but you you wrote you spoke just recently in the House of Lords. I was listening to your last speech where you were talking about this um, free speech legislation that they're trying to which bizarre. I, I agree with you, like crazy, bizarre thing that you would have to legislate. But uh, but when you were doing that, you gave two, I believe, two examples particularly egregious examples, but very representative examples of the kind of um, attacks on free speech that are happening in the UK. Could you tell us about those two examples? Yeah, I mean, that they are, this is the, an attempt by the government to do something positive. I don't know if it's going to work, which is to bring in a, a law that defends academic freedom, defends free speech on campus. Now, I don't think it's the right way to tackle it, and I'm bound to be, uh, I'm going to be arguing about it. But the point is, the argument against it, again, from the opposition benches is not that uh, how to improve this law so that we can have better defence of free speech, but is that we don't need the law at all because there's no free speech problem on campus. And you just think, well, you are mad. <laughs> Anyways, that's it. So I was trying to explain I support the law um, with reservations. But so the, the two the two examples are a, a, a woman called Lisa Pio in... Um, in Abertay University in Scotland, who in a she's a she's a mature student. She's you know mature in the sense that she's twenty nine, not nineteen. <laughs> yes. To me, she's still a child. But anyway, yeah. and she's uh, and she's you know, and there's a lesson, a lesson, a seminar at university, and they're discussing uh, feminism and so on. And she, in a discussion, and they were invited to debate and participate in this. And she um, pointed out that she thought that. By saying that uh, people who uh, identify as uh, transgender can, for example, participate in uh, sports. So uh, um, a, a, ma- a male who identifies as transgender can then, uh, as, as female and is transgender, can then participate in female sports. This is obviously a big territory in America, right? But anyway, she pointed out that testosterone, having that much testosterone in your body, if you're a 30 year old man, it's quite a lot of testosterone, no matter what you've done in the recent year or two, and that this might give you a biological uh, advantage. And she also pointed out that women have vaginas. And she also put, you know, forgive me for saying the word, even as somebody said, the idea that I said that word in the House of Lords was shocking enough. <laughs> but she but she said it in her seminar. Correct. And she has been hauled before a disciplinary panel and told that this um, is, you know, a, a, um, a disciplinary matter. Now, she's a law student. Yes, she's a law so student. So this could mean that she won't practice law if this goes through. And hopefully um, the case will, you know, the, the, this university will back off. But that's where she's at at the moment. And the other example, which I feel very strongly about, is a teacher training student in Manchester Met University, um, whose name is unknown to us. Um, but he... Um, 
he was wrote a, 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 an email to him because these days you don't have face-to-face -face teaching. So he contacted his tutor, his teacher training tutor, and said, look, there's this terrible case of a teacher in West Yorkshire in Batley, uh, a grammar school, who showed a, a cartoon of uh, Muhammad uh, in a lesson on religious tolerance and then there was a protest outside the school. The teacher is in hiding mm -hmm. for his life. The head teacher panicked and suspended the teacher. And basically this teacher has been abandoned. He's hiding for his life. Now this is in the context of only last year, a French teacher who also showed the cartoon being butchered and beheaded for the same offense. So when this teacher's in, in, in uh, hiding for, you know, fear of his life, he's not making it up because once there was massive mob outside the school demanding he be sacked and dealt with, you'd be scared, right? Mm -hmm. So the trainee teacher in Manchester wrote to the head of department and said, look, I want, I want to know what you think about the fact that the education unions haven't defended this teacher, mm -hmm. right? His own union. Now we have had the whole pandemic, had the teaching unions saying the most important thing is our members' safety. We don't want them to catch the virus from primary school pupils, kids, right? But one of their members is actually having his life threatened and they, and they say, calm down, everyone. We don't want to discuss a very delicate, sensitive situation. And that was, and that was after they'd stayed silent for weeks. Yeah. They also, by the way, were the same union that preached that violence is silence when it came to Black Lives uh, Silence is violence when it came to Black Lives Matters. But mm -hmm. silence apparently is not violence when you throw one of your own members to the wall. So this teacher training student, 19 year old, about to be a teacher, says, would what do you think, head of department, of the fact the teaching union's done anything, nothing to defend him? And would you defend me if I showed that picture in a lesson? Because I teach religious studies. Mm -hmm. And would you, the university, defend my right to do that? And the reply was, would you please come to a disciplinary panel next week so we can discuss whether we forward your case to a permission to practice panel, which would basically mean that before he's ever been a teacher, they ban him being a teacher. They didn't answer his question. They immediately cut, my God. Yeah. My God. Now, even the government's... Um, academic freedom bill will not protect either of those students ironically because it's only about academic staff but at least the government are trying to send a signal I mean I give them credit for this trying to say we need academic freedom on campus but I mean those cases are I mean you have loads of them in America but they just summed up to me to, for me that you know there is an atmosphere of total intolerance that allows these things to occur and that progressive people People on the left, and I'm from that tradition, are going along with it because mm -hmm. they would say, well, the problem is bigotry. Bigotry of a transphobic woman in Scotland, of a potentially Islamophobic, uh, uh, somebody, you know, really, really, that teacher trainer really is having a go at Muslims, which is so insulting to Muslims, by the way, because the majority of Muslims do not think that you should form a mob outside a school because of showing a picture of Mohammed. Mm -hmm. That's just a small group. Mm -hmm. But of course, they represent, in identity politics terms, self-appointed, they represent all Muslims. But, but also, for me, it just strikes me actually as, 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 as not fair that you're allowed free, as an academic, you're allowed free speech 
on campus but i'm not i'm not allowed free i can be arrested for saying something on the public high street or in a debate you can actually be arrested now in britain for for free speech for for saying something offensive if someone finds it offensive and your dna taken and all that if someone finds it offensive which allows me to segue into the well, fact that Claire wrote a book called I Find This Offensive, which yes. is available on at all bookstores. It's just been republished. I and, think it's called I Still Find This Offensive. I still stand, and we will put up the links so that people can get right. Claire's book. Yeah, but, but actually, I mean, it's, um, yeah. I mean, why should academics, by the way, if, if no, of course, free speech is not, is not a good thing, why should academics get a car about it? No, so, so, so the idea, um, the idea is, and I completely understand that because I've asked the same question, as it were. But a bit like with artistic freedom and, and uh, press freedom and, and academic uh, uh, freedom, these are supposed to be enhanced free speech provisions, right? You know, you're meant to have even more free speech. Now, for those of us who believe that free speech is unlimited, but you know, like you say, as a journalist, how can you have press freedom if I can't go off and interview whoever I want, right? And you have a kind of sense of what press freedom means. Artistic freedom, it's like as an artist, you have to be able to explore all avenues you know, express yourself however you want. And academic freedom, because universities are supposed to be the place where you pursue truth, ask awkward questions, overturn orthodoxies, there's a particular understanding of a protection. Now, I agree with you. For me, it all we all should have all that all the time. All I'm saying is there is a historic uh, um, concept called academic freedom. Mm -hmm. And that academic freedom concept is being betrayed by academics and academia on universities. So I don't think the way to fight all of this is simply by having laws on every single thing that's got special protection. Yeah. Yes. And I want free speech to be a much greater value of much greater value to everyone in society. But I think we can see again, this is like lessons from the pandemic times. You know, one of the things that I realized is that. We can say, well, you know, free speech matters. How can you take down that video? Why are there no debates on mainstream media? Why is it that anyone who says this is called a... Yeah. Um, when, they, when they say, um, take that down, people will say, well, yes, but you can't have anyone say anything, Claire, in a period like this, because safety comes first. Yeah. And, and actually... When I heard that, I thought, well, that'll just show you. My book, I find that offensive, is actually about how safetyism had actually, before it was fashionable to use that silly word, how safe, how the issues around safety were the thing which should basically trumped free speech because yeah. people would yes. say psychological yeah. safety yeah. was the kind of expanded thing. Well, hasn't that come to roost? I mean, my goodness, wow. we've just seen that. And yeah. the, the main thing I'm trying to say is we never won the arguments. You know, so actually people do say if it's a choice of safety or liberty, I'm going for safety. Mm. And I think it shows you that we can't be complacent. You have to win the arguments. So uh, my attitude to the academic freedom bill, Phelan, is similar to yours, which is I resent the fact that there's a bill mm. protecting free speech on campus. Yeah. Yeah. But at this stage, I'm prepared to say anything that gives shows a smidgen of leadership from the political elite. Yes. They're prepared to defend free speech. I will grasp on, but yeah. I will also grasp them up and say, well, whilst you're doing that, you brought in the, you're bringing in a really scary thing, which is the online safety bill. Safety. 
bill, online safety bill, mm. in which they've made it very clear that lawful speech online will be banned and censored under that bill. Yeah. If yeah. it psychologically upsets anyone. I would be more into the academic freedom bill, uh, free speech bill, if, if, I, if I felt academics deserved, not, not deserved it, but there's been nobody more censorious than academics. Um, and yes, but one, one thing that you should know is that's true, that's true, but what has exploded here, and I don't think it's really happened in the US, is that the issue of gender critical feminism has really come to the fore here. So people who maybe had not, you know, the kind of progressive left had kind of allowed um, the no platforming of people for a wide range of reasons to carry on ever broader reasons why people were denied platforms. But the issue of transgender and transphobia and gender critical feminism has swept up some very well-respected, well-regarded feminist academics. And they have realized, and to be, to, to be, gener- to be fair to them, they have realized that it's not just them and a bit like when it happens to you, you look around and you think, oh, who you? When we say, but we're academics, we should have academic freedom. There's no one there, you know, it's like, and, and they, so that has changed the atmosphere. So whilst you can say, you know, they don't deserve it, or certainly there's been an intolerant atmosphere and academics themselves have been at the forefront of some of the most egregious examples of clamping down on free speech. And have also created an atmosphere on campus which is entirely intolerant to anything other than a suite of orthodox opinions. Mm. And certainly, if you wanted to say you were a leave voter on university campuses, you'd be handed off as a xenophobic, you know, ignorant type. And uh, they they kind of made a virtue of distinguishing themselves from the UK version of deplorables by how erudite they were. I get all that. But it's also the case that universities have got 50% of the UK, uh, uh, you know, that cohort of, you know, 50% of that any age cohort goes to university now, right? Yeah. So a lot of them are stunned into silence, but they haven't all gone along with it. And so I think that therefore the university is an important place for us to fight for that free speech. And that takes a form of academic freedom. So I'm up for it. Yeah. Yes. You're correct that... Um... On universities, you, uh, if you were a leave voter, you'd be described as a xenophobe. I remember it was after the Brexit referendum, I discovered the difference between uh, a xenophobe and a racist. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> my nieces who'd been to... Um, to, to elite universities. No, my nieces who hadn't been to university thought I was a racist. And then my nieces who had been to universities thought I was a xenophobe. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. not all of them, by the way. No, 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 we hurry to yes. add. Yeah. I have many. Yes. Um, so... Talking of free speech, uh, we now come to the most important part of the interview, Harry and Meghan. Um, <laughs> yeah, the only, like the yeah, the only thing that really really matters. Yeah. So Harry recently, Prince Harry, to give to his, you to give him his title, yeah, yes, uh, um, which he shouldn't have, Baroness, if, if he if he so dislikes the royal family so much. But anyway, Prince Harry uh, recently just expressed complete amazement at. The American concept of free speech. Um, oh, that's right. <laughs> he called it ridiculous. I think it was um, bonkers. He called it bonkers. Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. You know. So just to get the quote. Just right. to get the quote right. I mean, 
there are many things around him that are bonkers. Uh, I don't think free speech is one of them. Many people around him that are I bonkers. That. No, you didn't. But, but anyway, I... he's just up the road from us, um, uh, up in Montecito. And uh, what would you like to, if you could talk to Prince Harry now, what would you say to him about the concept of free speech and the concept of the royal family also, uh, given your revolutionary communist party background and that you're now a baroness, you've, I think you've got a unique insight. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I thought it was funny that he said, um, I don't, I'm, I'm only new here, so I don't know much about this First Amendment. I thought, yeah, it's not, it's not, you know, American Constitution's First Amendment is not confined to being American to understand it. So I, yeah. uh, it was an insight in and of itself, you know, but it all seems bonkers to me. You know, what I would say to him, or not even say to him, but what one of my, one of the things that you have to say is that the, the idea that um, if you were reared in the royal family, um, which is undoubtedly a peculiar institution to be raised in, and you are undoubtedly subject to very many restrictions on your liberty uh, as an individual, mm-hmm. um, you know, in exchange for being, you know, incredibly powerful, privileged and all the rest of it. But, you know, that's, and I can imagine, right, that you could be a bit of a rebel and you might think, no, we can't, I can't stand it. I want to just live my life, right? And then you could say, well, and all the media are interested in you all the time. So I don't want any of that. You know, I want to go off and be a normal person, right? Mm-hmm. I could have some sympathy for that. But what's happened is, is that a man who claims that he wants a private life without media intrusion has ended up becoming somebody who has revealed every most intimate secret of his family life, his inner soul, such as it is, his relationship, you know, his, what did he call it? Genetic, genetic inheritance. That's right. It means he doesn't understand biology any more than he understands the American constitution or free speech. But, you know, there he is. And he's kind of got this kind of therapeutic, psychobabble he's spilling it all you just think well it, i i had sympathy with you while you were trying to escape the spotlight yes <laughs> basically we knew far less about you before you left the royal family now you seem to be tied into this really unholy alliance with the media which is that you with the american media but with all mainly the american media which is in order to give yourself a sense of identity you are never off a podcast or off the telly or off a, a film or whatever telling us all about yourself so it seems so that's the most important contradiction i think you know it's not even about the royal family for me i mean as you might have noticed i'm not you know i'm not an obvious royalist right no that has not changed since i've gone into the house of uh, lords which obviously by the way i think the house of lords should be abolished it's an undemocratic second chamber i still think that right? It's ridiculous to have a House of Lords, right? I'm there because I got offered it, and when does that often happen? And I thought, my God, I want to change things politically. Maybe this is a platform, and I'm getting on a bit. I'll take it up, right? So that's what I'm doing. The royal family, I am definitely more Republican than than I am a royalist. However, I do have some sense of respect for I don't know, loyalty, um, even family loyalty, mm-hmm. right? You know, like like 
and a bit of dignity and a bit of duty. <laughs> I think these things are quite important. You know, so even though the royal family might be this very ambivalent institution, it, the virtues that it, sh- that it ideally represents, he is turning his back on. Mm-hmm. And they are virtues that I think are virtues for us, whether we're in the royal family or not. Yes. And therefore, I think it's really unpleasant to watch the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you will know that in America, I mean, by the way, I've hardly commented on this at all. I probably regret commenting on it now. But I made one or two very, very, very minor comments on social media. And I spent about three or four days fighting off Americans calling me a racist. Oh. Americans. They were all Americans. They weren't following me. And out of nowhere, there was a kind of like troll army of people who said, how dare you attack these wonderful people? And it was kind of very much posed, which was an interesting because I thought, well, this is weird. It was very much posed as, you know, kind of like, you know, most British people are, are white supremacist supporters of the old royal family. And so they didn't know they were t- when I said they didn't know they were talking to when it was me, but when they were sort of saying royalists like you, I was thinking, God, nobody has said that to me in my fit, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, rep- you know, defending this white institution against the modernizing instinct and so on and so forth. So, you know, and and was and was then accused of racism. So actually, I think it's actually a really big issue in America on the race, or even more than here. Although oh, yeah. it has been an issue here. Um. I, I, sorry, just the, the the other bit though that is that the thing that's slightly confusing is that I don't know if you've been following this um, the disgrace of the BBC. Oh Not yes, very, very closely. Very closely, yes. Yeah, fascinating. Um. So so on the one hand, it's kind of you know it's kind of with some with you know I kind of notice um that the BBC are squirming somewhat and they deserve to squirm. And I think that the Martin Bashir interview with Princess Diana, which has been well um, discussed now, and the new report out by uh, Lord Dyson from the House of Lords, um, basically revealing that, in fact, uh, Princess Diana was effectively conned into doing that interview or the circumstances of it. That's the kind of story as it is. And those people who are really keen to bash the BBC and with I understand why they would be, are very keen to leap on that. But there's something I'm just slightly nerve-wracking is Princess Diana was not a... She, she had agency. She, to a certain extent, knew what she was doing. I mean, she wasn't exactly wandering in. And partly, Princess Diana, or the Dianification of the royal family at that time, was about this kind of row in the establishment about how the, how the royal family should be. Should they be the stiff upper lip? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Blah, blah, yeah. Or yeah. should they be the touchy feely therapeutic? And to a certain extent, the Diana phenomena, uh, while she was alive and then really kind of almost embedded in society after she died, tragically died, was to say that, you know, we've now, and the royal family had to adapt to that more human, we aren't that, you know, oh, you know. And what I'm saying is, Prince Harry is kind of continuing in that in that yes. um, yeah he is taking after his mother in that sense but it's not just like what a dippy lunatic he is and why has he become woke this has been a trajectory for mm-hmm. some time yes. yes oh yeah i mean actually if you think about it it started back i think in the 60s or 70s when the royal family were persuaded to do that fly on the wall documentary exactly. that was supposed and that was prince to- philip 
And that, that was and that, that was Prince Philip. As, as it's the humans behind the thing. That's right. Of yeah. Kind of backfire. Yeah. And also William and and uh, Kate, you won't really know what to say, or aren't they dignified in comparison? I mean, and they are, but it's a low bar. Yeah. Um, you know, and I no, but it is. It is because obviously dignified in the sense of people mean. Uh, but but you know, it is also the case that every time I see William um, and Kate on, that they also are you know, very much, you know, mental health issues, very much the modern era and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I think what's really tragic, I mean, I do think it's actually sort of tragic about Prince Harry in a way. I mean, that was a way it was stated, but is it just feels a sort of unpleasant exposure of a, of a young man, you know, and Megan, I don't know anything about her, but, you know, you just think what, this isn't a happy story. Yeah, it doesn't no. feel like a happy story to me. No. I'm just making the point that I don't think that Harry is destroying the royal family. I think the royal family, like every major institution in the Western world, is having its own internal struggles and doesn't know how to be in the modern world. Mm-hmm. It doesn't know how to play issues around identity politics and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um... I mean, you're right. There's a there's a sense of of that's not a happy story. I mean, this is a man who 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 has a lot of opp- actually he has a lot of opportunities to really be his own person, and he seems to be wallowing in the past. And uh, that seems to be the only. I mean, he, he could do so much actually, but with. With with the nexus that he has. Well, as a cat, but but it's it's quite popular though, to nowadays to make a career of um, something a tragic thing maybe that happened to in your life, yeah. and to make a career of that. There's a lot of successful examples of it, you know, um, for someone, you know, and, and people, you know, they get people have something happen to them, and they do a speaking gigs for decades afterwards, you yeah, know. Yeah. So uh, he's a, obviously a much. Um, uh, more lucrative version of that, and you know he's going to make a ton of money. But um, and he's, he is, he's but I don't even think it's cynical. That's yeah. the worst thing is somebody might be cynical in that thing. But I mean, he has adopted the, you know, the contemporary victim mode. You know, my story. I, 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 I am here. Everything that bad has happened to me is because of what happened to in my past, what my parents did, or what my father. You know, we and this sort of terrible thing. And I am going to break the cycle, he says. But actually, he's not breaking the cycle at all. He's repeating the cycle. Yes. He's putting yes. himself into a permanent victim position. Well, I, I, the only thing I was trying to say before was, you know, I can imagine if you, it's not his fault he's born as a royal. You just are, aren't you? You know, that's like the thing. Yeah. And, and I can understand that there are people in the royal family who probably think, I really, really, really hate it. I want to go off, right? But then you go off into oblivion. You know what I mean? You go, you know, yes, yes. you just go, right, I went to live as a private citizen. Thank you very it's much. A, and and no doubt you'd have a bit of doshing. You'd have a bit of, you know, it wouldn't yeah. be like you would not be living in penury. Yeah. But nonetheless, this feels to me as though he wants to escape it, but actually he's just trapped. And Montecito, actually, of course, it's a beautiful place. But actually, funny enough, Montecito, one thing I know about Montecito, it does, and Taki said this in The Spectator last week, it doesn't have a village center. Like it doesn't no. really have a place. No. It doesn't have a place where you'd stroll. It doesn't have bookshops. It doesn't have it doesn't really have coffee shops or anything. It's just this, well, you know, it has that it has that, that, that high rest, street. Lucky's restaurant and all, but it's not a few I wouldn't shops call it around there now. I wouldn't call it like a, a quaint little village where you can go and, and 
uh, and and live in obscurity and and have a butcher and a baker and a candlestick maker. A nice pub that you go to. Yeah. Anyway, we're running out of time here. This is great, Claire. Thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it and um, hope to do this again soon. Real life, face to face. Uh, yes, exactly. Very, as I say, very interesting. And you know, I mean, we could talk for another three hours with yes. Claire. I feel like we hardly got near anything. Actually, That's right. there's I mean, a lot of, lot of. She's very, very interesting, and we'll definitely have Claire on again. I often wonder how Joe Rogan keeps going for three hours, but he's got very interesting. Yes, guests. yes, it's not difficult. At and all. by the way, people don't seem to mind it. No one ever writes into us and says, "I wish your program was shorter." I think one person did one time. Too long. Yeah, yeah I think but it was one write person. In, okay, write into the comments on the YouTube. Write into the comments on the Apple Podcast app. Say, would you? Do you think the show is too long, too short, or or just perfect, like, just the way it is? Is it is it like Goldilocks? Okay, Phil, what else is happening today? Not Goldilocks, the porridge in Goldilocks. What else is happening today? So yes, the New York Times. So headline, yeah, portentous headline. Long slide looms for world population with sweeping ramifications. Fewer babies cries, more abandoned homes towards the middle of this century as deaths start to exceed births. Changes will come that are hard to fathom. They're hard not, to fathom. They're not hard, hard to, to fathom. fathom. We were telling you about them for <coughs> decades. You, you anti-human, horrible people. So, you know, by Damien Cave, Emma Bubola, and Choi Sang Hun. You mm -hmm. know, and it's like all over the world. Countries are confronting population stagnation and a fertility bust, a dizzying reversal, unmatched in recorded history, that will make first birthday parties. A rarer sight than funerals, and empty homes, a common eyesore. And it's like, it goes on and on. Maternity wards are already shutting down in Italy. Ghost cities are appearing in northeastern China. Universities in South Korea can't find enough students. And in Germany, hundreds of thousands of properties have been raised, and the land turned into parks. That would be, would that not be a good thing? With the land turned into a park yeah, for the anti-humans anti among them. Like an avalanche, the demographic forces pushing toward more deaths than births seem to be expanding and accelerating. And they go on and they look at, they look at, oh, they talk to, this, I like this, a part, you know, they're saying, the strain of longer lives and lower fertilities leading to fewer workers and more retirees. Threatens to upend how societies are organized around the notion of a surplus of young people that will drive economies to help pay for the old. You know, by the way, who were the people saying, your pensions are unsustainable. We said that your pensions are unsustainable. Yes. Because you know, by the way, they're unsustainable anyway. You can't have someone working for you know here in LA. You have a cop or a firefighter or a parking meter attendant. By the way, because that's a stress, high stress job. They can work for twenty years, retire on a full pension, uh, and uh, so they work for twenty years and live for sixty years. I have a question. Or Phil. fifty years. I have a question. Yes. So where where in this story in this blockbuster story in New York Times does the New York Times say whoopsie daisy we've been writing and propagating and um, proselytizing a completely erroneous story for decades starting with Paul Ehrlich and the population explosion where apparently we were all going to be dead or of starvation yeah. by the way at the at the turn of the century yes so is there a whoopsie daisy in there, there is, is there a mea culpa not in the slightest not in the same. And this is what they do, you know. So now we have the whole world up in arms and up the whole economy being changed for climate change. And you know what's going to happen? 40, 50 years, it'll be like, you know, oopsie daisy. Do you know what? Climate naturally changes. It, is. it isn't anthropomorphic. It isn't, you know, it isn't powered by people. But, you know, oopsie daisy, there's no, there's no come, you know, 
come to Jesus moments basically in this. Well, There's Paul, no Paul Ehrlich, Ehrlich. Paul Ehrlich was quoted. I saw Paul Ehrlich being quoted in the New York Times just a, just a few years ago. Somebody I mean, who was wrong still, about was so everything. Wrong, wrong about everything. And he was quoted about climate change. And by the way, what about the tiny population? Won't that mean that your climate mitigation measures are, are complete? If it's going to be a few billion less people, then, then it's going to be less emissions. New York Times, but you know. And by the way, as you say, Phelan, we've been saying this forever. We were saying this back when we made the film Not Evil, Just Wrong, that the problem was, the biggest problem facing us would actually be the, the decrease in population. Yes. Who's going to take care of these old people, all of us old people, when there aren't enough young people? Yeah. You know, a, a paradigm shift is necessary, said Frank Swahesny, a German demographer. Who Easier to say. Who was the chief. That's easy for you to say. Who was the chief of population trends and analysis for the United Nations until last year? Frank, did you ever say that when you were the chief of population trends and analysis for the United Nations? Yeah, are you just saying it now? You're just saying it now, and, and doesn't that make you a coward? And doesn't that you put all the billions that went from the United Nations to mitigate because of the population bomb, the explosion that was going to destroy everything? You you knew all along that there was an actual population decline. Did you did you publicize that? No. So. They go to Italy, they go to South Korea. I mean, you know, they, they, they point out to us about a kindergarten in Italy. It's now an old people's home. The, the, the nurseries are all closed. They can't, they can't get doctors to deliver babies because there are no babies. China has, has dust bowls, has dust cities, ghost cities. And, you know, then Anna Parolini in Italy uh, tells a familiar story. That's easier story. for you to say. Yes. She 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 uh she left her small hometown in northern Italy to find better job opportunities. Oh, I wonder would the the liberal uh, deindustrialization uh, uh you know oh we are all going to we need to learn to code and we just close small factories in in towns. Would that have anything to do with her moving to Milan? Uh, uh because she's on a salary of two thousand a month and lives in a shoebox in Milan and can't have, doesn't have the room for her children. I wonder would environmentalist policies that stop. Uh, they hate the suburbs. Would that be something to do? Sure. You no, know, if you live in a small apartment where the environmentalists want us to live and don't live in a suburb, in a house with a garden near a park, then of course you're going to have less children. But so environmentalists create a problem and then say we need to, you know, then one scratch their head why we have a problem. So New York Times, I'll take you serious when you go back and analyze your own coverage of the population uh, issue. I mean, just to be clear, I mean, I suppose we should tell people what the population issue is. There, China had the one-child policy. Mm -hmm. By the way, influenced by Paul Ehrlich and the, uh, and the population bomb. But when you have one child, and that child has one child or no children, you're then left with one child either supporting eight elderly relatives or 16 elderly relatives. That is what they call unsustainable. That is fine if that child wants to do that. Some of them won't do it. Some of them will be unwilling or unable to do it. Some of them, so you're not then left with one child supporting 32 people. It's it's completely unsustainable, can I just, especially in a welfare state. Can I just remind you, Phelan, of the very funny thing that happened? We weren't very long in California and we were invited to a party. Do you remember that That's film right. in Santa Monica? Yes. Say no more. Mm -hmm. So we go into the party in Santa Monica and you know, and there's a woman there, a pregnant woman there, and she has like a little child with her, like maybe one child or two children, but she has another child. She, she has one child and she has another, she's very pregnant. She's very pregnant and she has another child, right? And she sits down beside me and I'm asking her how is she doing? And she says, um, do you have children? And I said, no. And she said, thank you.
You're better. You're better. You're better. You're you're a better person than me. And I'm like, I didn't even know where she was. I, I it took me so much surprise. I couldn't work out what was going on. And she went. I, I said, what you, what's that now? What, what if it's, what if, what, because I kind of love, I love people thinking I've done something good, by the way. So I'm always wanting to encourage yes, that, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was delighted well, with on that. On the record. On the record, it was like, great, tell me more about what a great person I am. So I was a great person because I wasn't as sore on the planet as she and her offspring were going to be. Yeah. So uh, yes, that's Santa you Monica. Her, uh, well I educated her. I did I do a bit of education. We never got invited back to that house. Now. No, let's be honest. We never now. did. Now. That was the end of that. Now I said, you know, and funny, she she knew nothing about what you were saying, right? She knew nothing about it. So then and I'm a was, then I'm a crazy but person. Also, she was married to a journalist. I know. We're not going to get into it. All right, moving so, on. No, actually, I mean, it's funny. It's like Franny Armstrong, my old nemesis, Franny Armstrong, who who created the movie The Age of Stupid about how we're all going to uh, destroy the planet because of overconsumption. She. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> I remember this. She. Uh, you know, was a young woman, and uh, and I get, I still get her newsletter every day or every week. She sends it out, and in her newsletter, she announced that she was having a baby, and uh, it was great. And the baby arrived, and she was, and basically everyone around her was having babies as well. All, all oh. they were all in their thirties, whatever. They're all having babies, and uh, you know, she and her newsletters rather started off as we're all going to die, and then they they morphed into oh look at this cute picture of all the babies <laughs> we're having, which I much preferred actually yes it was much more accurate and then i think she got sort of wrapped over the knuckles so she's she, her next newsletter was look i know a lot of people have been writing to us saying how can you talk about global warming and make a documentary about global warming when you have children and are going to you know be part of this whole consumption and expansion of the population and she says well you know look i would recommend this book uh uh, by somebody, uh, you know, only one will do. Why only, only one, one, will, one do. will do? Yeah, so yeah. she was saying, you know, one child, and I suppose there's a, there's a, if you believe in the doom and gloom, there's a there's a certain truth to that because you know you're actually having the human consumption. But then, about a few months later, she announced she was expecting a second child, and she's never addressed the topic ever since. Yeah, yeah, that was the end. <laughs> yeah, of that was the end of that. That was the end of that. So, so um, in a more in a more. Um, sobering and sad story mm -hmm. cnn uh, you know it's very funny like the mainstream media basically acknowledging you know slowly 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 they're starting to acknowledge the stories that we talked about well over a year ago um and here's one of them which i just think it's terrible it's it's basically they've interviewed people uh, my description of these people is people who are broken by COVID, yeah. and they're not broken by long COVID or any kind of symptoms from COVID. these are people who didn't have COVID, but who are broken by the lockdown, basically. Um, for all the people, so here's how CNN starts this story. For all the people who are clamoring to get back into the world post-vaccine, there are plenty who are saying, nope, we aren't ready. Yeah. Even with science of the vaccine on their side and liberating new CDC guidelines on masks issued last week, it's about what people are comfortable doing. Getting on a plane, going to concerts, shopping for groceries in person, or going, you know, you know, are, are going to the movies are some of the things that they feel uncomfortable about and that they're basically not going to do. So they go through this bunch of people. They speak to a few people. You know, they've got Dawn Moore from Congress in Georgia. She's 55 years old, you know. We're not going to be hermits in the house, but I think there are still so many unknowns right now. Simply because I've gotten both vaccines doesn't mean that I can just go out in public and act as if, ever, as if nothing ever happened. 
then what's the point in taking the vaccine? Would be my kind of question to that, right? You know, she went to a, we went to a restaurant and we heard had good social distancing. And when we got when, when I got a promotion, we got inside and I'm horrified because I'm looking around. And these people don't have masks on, and I'm thinking, what's wrong with these people? The servers had masks on, so we didn't take ours off. We'll keep going out to eat, but outdoors or only takeout. Oh, I love this bit here. The theatre is totally out of the question for me. Very much. But at the drive-in theatre, you know, you feel... I mean, this is... Yeah, the theatre is... Makes me, this makes me... Yeah, go on. I mean, it's wrong to say happy, right? But sorry, you know, movies have been pumping out left-wing, anti-hateful, anti-conservative, anti-Republican, anti-American crap for decades now. The theatre has been that plus, plus, plus. The theatre has been agitprop, propaganda, hateful, hateful. They, they, they want this ultra uber liberal audience and that was their audience. And now who's not going to go to the theatre? Who's not going to go to the movies? The liberals you have been courting for the last 30 or 40 decades. If you had courted both sides, if you had courted conservatives and encouraged them and made movies for them, that you might find your movie, your theatre's half full at least with a loyal, now. loyal following. With a loyal following. But you're now looking to the very people you have spewed hate upon for decades now to fill your seats. And I don't think they will, because there ain't nothing there to see. So Car then another story from the CNN, another one. I'm just gonna do one more of these, but they're really awful. Carla Glidewell, she's 72. She's in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, and here's the line I thought, you know, before the pandemic, this is what she used to do. I used to take my two grandsons to and from school every day. This is really sad. That ended last year in March. And if you wanna believe this, she says, my daughter lives 12 miles from me and I'm not yet allowed to come over. My daughter is extremely cautious. I look forward to being with the boys again. I've missed a year of their life. But she's still not allowed over, yeah. right? You know, I've always played Pollyanna game. When you're 72, you've been through a lot and I always try to find the good in whatever's going on. My mother lived through World War II. You know, but, but and then this, this is an extraordinary one as well. I'll just do one more. I just think the introduction to this is quite extraordinary. Jermaine Williams, who's 35 in Dallas, as a black, deaf and gay working professional with mental illness, my plan, so, I, know. I know. Sorry for getting you there, but it's like... I should, have, black, I should have warned you, by the way. As, as a, a black, black, deaf and gay working professional with mental illness, my plan post-pandemic post is to continue learning more about how to utilize my coping skills and reconnecting the disconnect I have experienced. As soon as I got vaccinated, I started doing little things like going to the gym, CrossFit five times a week, and I've run mostly, little, almost little daily. Things. Little I things. Like... But I went here, I still <laughs> wear my mask when I work out. That's kind of taking big steps to get back to normal. Can, can I just say that's, on, that's just, so American. That's so American. Just... Little things. Five CrossFits, two marathons, an ultra whatever, and a, you know, a run up a mountain. But, but I mean, this is a very young person. Yes. Listen to what he says. For example, large gatherings are something that I will not be returning to. It's because of the current climate with people choosing not to be vaccinated and they just, whatever and on. But you're vaccinated. You're yeah. vaccinated. What's his name? What's yeah. his name? Jermaine. You're vaccinated, Jermaine. You know? She misses bartending. Then this is another one. Joanne. <clears throat> She's 49. She lives in Vancouver, Washington. She misses bartending, but she won't be going back after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I'm not a barfly, but as a bartender, it's so much fun. I get to flirt. I get to meet new people. I will really miss that. But now with the threat of pandemic, you know, and serious illness, do I want to be around that many people? I usually get like a horrible cold every winter from my health. But she, actually, but she had COVID in July. Yes, I actually had COVID. Yeah. But can I just ask you something? What's her name again? Joanne. Joanne Van Veen, yes. 49. Who's going to pay your bills, Joanne? Yeah. 
Where are you getting the money from? And the answer is from the government, actually, yeah. Yeah. from us. I yeah. mean, sure, you don't want to go back bartending, but like, you're 49, like you've got another 40 years left to live. Here's what she says, I don't know if it's just my age, but I feel like the whole pandemic thing changed my me forever in a good way. As far as financially, I never ever in my wildest dreams thought that bartending would be a thing of the past or that it was paused for a year and a half to where you can't interact with people. I'll definitely, but anyway, she's, she's not going back to bartending. Inside my house, I can shut it all out. You know, and this is, you know, and it goes on and on. And if anyone wants to look that up, we'll put a link up on our, our you know, to who these it, people. Who was it, John Paul Sartre, saying hell stories. is other people? Yeah. I mean, you know, hell is other people, but also, so that's the world of, is other people. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is, this. Is, it's just really, I just find it, I just think it's really, really sad. Um, people have been broken. They're broken, not broken by COVID, they're broken by by the lockdown. So, you know, in a, something, in a slightly lighter um a lighter story that I thought I would bring to you. Mm -hmm. And I think for people who are listening and who are not watching on YouTube, you might want to watch this on YouTube, but we'll try and be as descriptive as possible. Mm -hmm. I want to bring to Phelan's attention a little property that I discovered oh. that I think is kind of interesting. Oh, should we move and, there? You know, that's the question. So Phelan, there's the outside of the house there. Now this house is for sale right now. And I'm going to go through the photographs with Phelan and show Phelan the photographs. In need of some TLC, I would in say. In need of an awful lot of TLC, I'd say from now. The in the front, garden. From the front, yeah, the garden. The garden a bit bald, very bald in fact. Yes. And I would say there's a bit of a box out the front there as well. It looks like it's, it's you like know. the garden looks like one of those water friendly gardens as in it hasn't been watered. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so this is the outside of the house. At the end, before we finish this, I'm going to tell you the, the price of this. Oh, house, that's the thing. Oh, and what, I'm going to what, tell you where, where and I'm going to tell you where it is. So then look oh, at that lovely photograph. Does the abandoned car come with the... Uh, so at the side of the, the house... The car is so abandoned, it's got one of these old fashioned number plates on it actually. So basically at the side of the house is an abandoned car. It looks like a, it looks like a Ford Cortina to me from, from a vault. And there's another photograph at the oh, side of the house. Yeah. You know, very battered looking. Right. Now the windows aren't broken, I have to say. Yeah. That's something, right? Then oh, that's, that's the side... I mean, some of these photographs you think, why are you putting up these photographs? Why would you even put up the photograph? Yes. So it's, let's say... Oh, there's another abandoned car, Volkswagen. So people. second abandoned car in the backyard. And the backyard is very overgrown. Would you right. not say that, Phil? Very overgrown. And then oh another, another it's angle... It's like hoarders. Another, and a wheelchair, just a wheelchair. to remind you that, you know, we're all going to die sometime. So you know, very uncheerful photographs. And as you say, an awful lot of rubbish and hoarding kind or of stuff in the, back, in the backyard. And, uh, and there's a detail now of the hoarding material that's all lined up. Let's zoom up, zoom in on the hoarded material on the trash. Yeah, every yeah, kind yeah. of broken and, thing. And the windows are boarded oh, up. Oh, and the window is broken up because it's the back window is broken. And, then and here's a scullery film. And you know, room. we have often made this point that's kind of amazing to me about property. Like, look at this situation here with this photograph where you have... The, the the curtains are broken, but they're kind of hanging off. Why don't they kept the curtains off? Number one, trash could you not sink? throw the trash away or whatever? Anyway, disgusting, really disgusting image there. Another disgusting oh. image of another little small kind of room that you'd kill yourself in. Oh, like basically an yeah. office, I think, inverted commas. But it could be with lots be of kind of ab abandoned drugs, by the way, right? Does that oh, look yeah. like abandoned, abandoned drug, drugs? Yeah, abandoned yeah. drugs or whatever. And now we're into the delightful ah, kitchen, the kitchen film. Ah, talk to us about the kitchen film. I mean, I can just imagine, you know. Whipping home, up a fabulous home, meal. Home cooked meals. A home cooked meal. So there you are. Even the sink is full of dishes from, I would say, decades. And and then look at the, look at the, they've got the abandoned letters on the floor. Disgusting. I'm going to go, oh move, I'm moving God. quite quickly. This floor. picture now of the living room looks like there's been a flood. 
See the wet floor feeling? Yes. And then we've got loads and loads of boxes. There's a murder there. There actually. might have been a murder there. That's the kind of thing, right? Another little sad photograph. I'm just flicking through these ones now very quickly. Very bad. Hoarders International. And then look at that photograph of the bathroom oh, there, Philip. Oh, How delightful. I just imagine days lying, lounging in that bathroom. You wouldn't call that now a spa bathroom now, no matter no. what you were saying to yourself. No. But the fact that they didn't even bother cleaning it up, do you know what I mean? You knew a bit of a towel there. There's oh, another angle, another the, angle on that. Brown stains on the brown bath stains there. Brown stains and a bit of toilet roll there, just uh, to make you think. Now, here's the thing I'm going to say to you now, Philip, is I'm going to now ask you how much do you think that little lovely detached house would cost? Give me a price on it. Well, location, 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 obviously. Well, I'm not telling you location right now. Okay, that house should cost 50,000. 100,000 if it's in a really nice place, you know, you know. So 100,000 if it's in a I mean, really I suppose nice it's got place. All the, it's got electricity and water, so actually that could cost a bit more because... So anyone who is listening on the podcast, you're really going to have to watch and go onto the YouTube and watch this because you're going to want to really look at those photographs. So that, fo that house, Phelan, I will tell you the price of that house. That price, that house is $920,000. $920,000. They're looking for just a shade less a shade less than a million dollars for that house. For that. And by the way, it is one of the most competitively priced houses in the neighborhood. Well, I, hope, house, so. I, hope, I hope there's not in many more houses in the neighborhood like it. This house is in Los Angeles. Not only is this house about a million dollars and looks like something where there's been multiple murders over many decades yes. and, a, and a huge amount of professional neglect. Not only that, but this house, if you look at the photograph we're showing now, is nestled. Let's say nestled, because I like the it's word nestled. nestled. Ah, so, I would say cute. it's Wait. nestled. Talking nestled, nestled by the way, we underneath. It. it is nestled underneath a highway. Is that the 405? And it is, look, it's a number of highways, actually. Oh, yes. Sorry. Not only a, the 405. A, a, a nest of, ne a nexus of ne a nested under a nexus of highways. It's not only that, by the way. It is nestled beside a intersection of, of two massive highways so you'd have on top of everything else you got that lovely constant industrial din of cars going past morning noon and night except for during the apocalypse which hasn't really happened so i just thought that was really delightful i thought it was really important that people realize how mad real estate is here but what i decided to do just for the crack and by the way you can play this game at home as well and I have to say, this is the kind of thing, once you start doing this... It's a rabbit hole. It's a rabbit hole. So property porn is something, Phelan, and I have a problem with it. We're going to be, you know, we're, we're coming to you for help. You know, this is who we are, right? Yeah. So it's just interesting to have a little look around the country and to look at other little properties we could get for the same price. What was 920,000? So 920, and I actually... By the way, I wanted to, just want to tell people, if you're wondering why all these Californians are coming to your towns and your cities, and... That's why. This is why. Because, <laughs> That's why. Because... You can imagine what they're selling their, their nice, their livable houses for. So I'll just go very quickly through a few properties I found at the same price in places that are not backwaters of any description. So here is a beautiful home in Fort Myers, Florida. And I'm only going to do the exterior. And by the way, I did the interior photographs and they're fabulous. But just look at that beautiful property. That's a property for the same price in Fort Myers. And then look at this delightful property. Look at this delightful property. And there's an interior of that one, by the way. This one in Clearwater, Florida. Mm -hmm. Look at that gorgeous house. And by the way, just look at this, yeah. Look at that house. It is a four bed, four bath. Four wow. bed, four bath, right? In Clearwater, another very well known. And look at this delightful Jesus. place. Okay, that's this colonial. That's a, so this colonial. That's makes colonial. That, that is like. I just love this. We're wow. moving through this very fast. This one, by the way, this lovely property is in Louisville, Kentucky. A beautiful place. Uh, I have been to Louisville. Five, five beds. Seven baths, 
just 8,900 square feet. As you do. And, and, and an acre, more than an acre. I mean, uh, yeah. just, and just a delightful house. So this so is why people, money, people, this is why people, you're being invaded by Californian refugees. This is why people are moving to your, to your neighborhood because they can, they, that's what their money, you know, they've lived in, as Phelan said earlier, you know, they've lived in a shoebox basically, you know, in, in, in New York or a shoebox in Chicago or whatever. And now they're living on a ranch in Nashville yeah. and they're thinking, like it's like the best thing that ever happened to them and they're delighted with themselves we're at the very end of the show now and the last thing i want to do is bring you a little tiny recipe, oh, recipe. this is a very a very short recipe we had a quite a big weekend we had two very large events that we mm -hmm. had to speak at so we uh we were a bit tight on time for making uh, an unusual recipe but i love this i've bought a new ninja my old blender died and I went to Costco because the great thing is if your blender dies and you have any problems with it, you go bring it back to Costco for about a thousand years. So this is the new Ninja. I love it. So we decided to make a smoothie. And this is a very easy smoothie that I would highly recommend. Really nice breakfast with almond milk. As you can see me there, I'm putting in two cups of almond milk, about two cups of almond milk. And by the way, people do this to your own taste. Then I added um, some peanut butter and I've added frozen bananas that have been in the freezer, but I would cut them up a little bit when you're putting them into the blender, just to give the blender a little bit of help. But put your liquid in first, liquid mm -hmm. in first, then I put in the Greek yogurt, I put in some uh, full fat Greek yogurt, always full fat, none of this low fat stuff for us. And then uh, pulse that in your, nin in your Ninja, or in your blender, whatever kind of blender you have. And it's really, really nice. And you'll see at the end actually, because we first of all had a go of that, and then we had a visitor. Our friend, yes. our friend Julie, mm -hmm. and I said to Julie, would you like some? And she, I told her what was in it. And she went, mm -hmm. I said, well, maybe you'd like some berries in it. And she said she'd like some berries in it. So we put the berries in. Yum, 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 yum. I, Very I, the popular. First one, the first one. We could it, have been too heavy on the peanut butter. I think it was a little bit. I would recommend a lesser peanut butter. Uh, so maybe I put in too much peanut butter. So, I mean, you'll see the quantities there in the video. And by the way, just decide yourself. But I do think a smoothie is an incredibly fast breakfast. Everyone's going to start writing now and telling me things about putting spinach in. There's no spinach in this house. Yeah. It's one of the things I just don't do spinach now. Oh my Magda now is looking. I can tell Magda. I'm not even looking at her. And I can tell Magda, of course, puts spinach in. Yes. Oh, no, totally. Big time. And, and she kale. puts in kale and she puts in carrots and everything like that. Magda has a child who thinks it's a treat to get cashew nuts. Oh, and now nuts were always a treat. No, he thinks it's a treat to eat cashew nuts. Yes. Were they just, were they unadulterated cashew nuts that he'd ate now? Yeah. Or were they salted cashew oh, nuts? Oh, unadulterated. Yeah. Yeah. He'd eat unadulterated. He thinks it's a treat down. Most kids think candy's a and treat. And dark chocolate. Right? And can I just say something? Oh, a dark chocolate. Now, uh, what, what, but, but interesting with that particular child, by the way, you know what might be wrong with him? Reminds me of a story of my brother. So my brother one time bought a horse. He did. He bought a horse because he decided he would ride a horse. Anyway, he bought a horse and the horse was very, very frisky. The horse like had unbelievable energy. And then he met somebody and the person said to him, what are you feeding the horse? And my brother said, oh, he gives him nuts all the time. The horse only had nuts. And this would explain this young man, Eric, who has basically been fed too many nuts, I, I think. think uh, I think there might be a nut problem because yes. we saw him last night. Now he ran up and down and ran up and down and ran up and down. I think he was like, you know, just a few two nuts. Now you have a few nuts too many. A few nuts too many, but then you add a bit of sugar to that. You see, he had yes. ice cream. Ice, ice cream. cream. Ice cream and nuts. Ice and cream and nuts. He had running, running, uh, running so fast. marathons around our house, more than marathons, sprints around our house, whilst narrating his own life. Whilst narrating his own life. He gives you a lot of details. We're not going to give you all the details he gave yes. us about his life yesterday. I, yes. Yeah. Because he gives all the details. All the details. And okay. he sings them sometimes. He also, yeah, can put them to music. Very talented. 
that's enough from us for this yes. week. And next week is going to be a little bit unusual, actually. Next week, we're going to have a best of Anne and Phelan show because we have the Memorial Day weekend. So it'll be a best of show. And, uh, on our you, greatest hits. On our greatest hits. You won't want to miss that because the stuff that we did a few years ago that you mightn't have seen, like me getting attacked by a student at Penn, at Temple University in in, uh, in Philadelphia. And you do the environmentalists who attacked you at CPAC as well. We'll do, a, we'll do all those highlights and you yeah. get to see them next week. And... We just want to say the Hunter Biden movie is going ahead. We are in negotiations with many people at the moment. Many people. And uh, it's very exciting. And we have raised almost almost 900,000 at this stage, more than 850,000. It's great. It's wonderful. We still have a long way to go. We want to raise 2.5 to make the movie. But it's coming in all the time. It's actually, we're going to hit that target. But we want to hit it sooner rather than later. So please... If you've been listening to this and you're thinking, ah, oh, let's go and give. Give them. now. MiceOnHunter.com. Very, very demanding. MiceOnHunter.com. Yes, but it's true, folks. I know you've been wonderful so far. And I know there are people out there going, yeah, I must do that. I must do that. We need it now because we have to, we're have we actually in production now. And we have to pay for locations, pay for actors, pay yes. deposits, hire people. And shopping need people look, no, and for, look, all, for, look for money. When, and, it all when and it all costs money to make to make these bookings. So, so please, we need the money now. Please give what you can and... Uh, don't postpone it. Don't postpone it. Thank Thanks you. so much. Go to mysonhunter.com. Thank you. Bye. Hey.